Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hi and welcome to the second of our August 2021 episodes. I'm Steve Randall and with climate change such a huge and pressing issue, we're stateside talking to architect Daniel Giaconetti about how the US is embracing green building and how it's doing compared to Europe. Plus, Peter Finn, Pete the Builder, shares more insights on the current challenges for the construction industry. What does connected construction look like? Viewpoint Construction Software connects your office, team and field. Viewpoint's cloud-based project management and field solutions help contractors of all sizes manage projects, processes and people from the design phase through to on-site completion and handover. To learn how Viewpoint is helping Wilmot Dixon, Kia, Galliford Tri, and over 8,000 other construction companies deliver projects on time and on budget, visit Viewpoint.com. So before we head stateside to talk about green building, let's welcome Peter Finn, Pete the Builder. How are you doing, Pete? Steve, how's things? Good to talk. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very good. Feeling good and enjoying the summer and looking forward to uh, our chat. Yeah, it's always great to uh, talk through the, the latest and greatest things that are happening in the construction industry and the challenges that I'm facing and I think most people in the industry are facing at the moment, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to talk about those issues. We've, we've got a big interview coming up and then we'll, uh, we'll come back and talk at the end, Pete. Sounds good, my man. I'll talk to you then. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. Climate change has been overshadowed in the past 18 months by the pandemic, but it remains the most crucial issue to be addressed by governments, industry and individuals, as highlighted in the recent shock report from the UN-backed Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The UN's Climate Change Conference COP26 takes place in the UK this November, and how the construction industry adapts to the risks will be a key component of building resilience worldwide. Constructive Voices Henry McDonald has been talking to an architect who's making a difference in the United States. My name is Tan Giaconetti, um, and I'm an architect. I've been an architect for almost 20 years. And um, for the past six years, I've been at a, a large corporate firm that has offices across the country, but I'm in the Chicago location. And recently, six months ago, took on a second role. So I'm a senior project architect, and I do work on projects directly. Um, usually large higher ed projects, but I'm also our national sustainable design leader, which right. means that I'm spending a good chunk of my time pursuing my passion um, and working with all of our offices. We have uh, regional sustainable design leaders in each office and working with the offices to make sure that we're pushing the integration of sustainable design in our work and also educating staff, you know, particularly maybe younger staff or staff that just don't have the sustainable design experience. What inspired you to enter sustainable architecture and how much of your own background influenced that? I grew up in a suburb of New York City, about an hour north, and it was fairly bucolic. I mean, it it was a suburb. It was sort of a vacation town for New Yorkers back in the 50s and 60s, but it, it also bordered a little bit on rural, right? So in the county that I lived in, town to the north, you know, there were horse farms and um, and, you know, just lots of trees and woods and mountains and valleys. And we would go hiking along the Hudson River. 
um, and, you know, really immersed in nature. And so I think, you know, by the time I was in high school, um, sort of uh, the preservation of the natural world was something that I realized was important. And in high school, I actually was um, joined the Student Environmental Action Club freshman year and became the vice president by my senior year. And we would do things like testing streams for water quality. And we ran the school's recycling program. Um, and interestingly, as part of that, I got to, at the time, right, I was also taking design and architecture classes, which my high school offered. I got to design the conversion of uh, a vacant restroom on the second floor of the school to be a new uh, water testing lab for the club, which they ended up getting someone to build. So that was kind of cool. And then I go off to university to study architecture and pretty quickly, you know, met the professors who were putting a name to this, were translating you know, love for preservation of nature into sustainable design. And, you know, those are all the classes that, you know, they were core classes, but then also electives that I took. And then I ended up being a teaching assistant for most of those classes and just really getting absorbed in it. And then ultimately did my thesis in topics that were called biological paradigms for architecture, right? So taking the way nature does stuff and using that and applying it to buildings so that you can have buildings that were more responsive to their environment and to their um, inhabitants, as well as more efficient, because nature is pretty efficient. In terms of your career, was there a, a turning point, a tipping moment when you said to yourself, it's time to go down the sustainable road? I mean, so interestingly, so I graduated from college, went to work at a local firm. The president of the firm was a fellow um, alumni of my college. And it was mostly a K-12 education firm. And sustainability wasn't really a huge topic. You know, I was trying to push it, right? But I was a young intern, right? Junior architect. Um, and then, you know, like two years into that, there was an advertisement for a firm in the city in New York, a firm called Croxton Collaborative, that I was aware of this firm. They had done projects for the Autobahn Society and they had written books and they were like a super green firm. You know, they were looking for someone with five years of experience, and I had two. And a friend of mine who I worked with, she encouraged me. She said, it can't hurt. Send in your resume. So I did, and they interviewed me and hired me, and I ended up working there for a few years. And that's where, I mean, small firm only worked with clients who were looking for very high-level sustainable design. While I was there, I um, worked on a renovation for the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, I got to work on researching and writing parts of the sustainable design guidelines that would govern the redevelopment of the whole World Trade Center site. So really immersed in everything sustainable design. It just dawned on me, this is what I need to do. This is what I want to do for the rest of my career. And after that point, every job I took, I only did if there was you know, a sustainable design role to be had as part of it. What kind of year was that when that kind of moment, that, that kind of epiphany happened? Um, so I was I graduated and started working in 2003. So I worked at that first firm 2003, halfway to 2004, and then I was at Croxton Collaborative 2004 to 2006. In your opinion, how does Europe and America compare in terms of green building practices? This is a cool question, right? Because there's a subjective and then there's a data-driven answer. Right. So you know, just if you think about what most people would have in their mind, think about vernacular evidence, right? Going back long time, thatched roofs in the English countryside, uh, modern energy efficient techniques, 
like double skin facades you see firms in mm. in Germany and in France. Yeah. Um and you're thinking, well, Europe is way ahead. And and I get it. Like when I used to lecture on double skin facades, energy prices have been much higher in Europe for much longer. And mm. you know, we have, we have all this oil industry here that you know we were getting cheap fuel. But I, I wanted to like get a little bit more scientific with it. So I found um, Yale University has this thing called an Environmental Performance Index or EPI that they um, research piece they put together. It's available online. And they look at things like ecosystem vitality, climate change leadership, right? That's a big one, and air quality. So if you look at this list, the United States is ranked 24th on this list. We get a score of 69.3. The leader in the list is actually Denmark. They're number one, and they've got a score of 82. And then if you kind of look at the bracket of who else is around them in like the 80th percentile, it's like Luxembourg, Switzerland, the UK, and France. So that's, you know, according to looking at these different parameters, that's, those are who are sort of at the top there. And you can see we're a little, we're a little bit down, you know, and it'd be great if we, if we in the U.S. could get you know, could get up to the top or, you know, at least higher than the 69th percentile, right? Uh, and I mean, what about your neighbors, Canada? How do they fare com- compared to the U.S.? So I was surprised. I expected them to be significantly better. They're actually ranked 20th and their oh. score is 71. So we're kind of hanging together. So I don't know, maybe maybe a future partnership between the the nations. I mean, we'll bring, invite Mexico to the party too, right? And have a North American push to up our sustainability game. In terms of states within the US, are there any states that lead in terms of green building? Uh, you know, let's talk about, was it California? Is it New York State? Which states are performing well? So it's, I'm glad you, you asked the question that way, right? Because again, if you think about this subjectively, or in people's opinion, I would. Pro- if you asked me to guess, if I were on Jeopardy and you asked me to guess, I would probably say California. Their energy code is the most stringent. Renewables seem to be, you know, much more prolific out there. But so again, um, you know, if you do a little bit of research, and there's a report that was compiled by the financial website called WallethHub. But what they did was they used a bunch of metrics to compare the 50 states. And they got these metrics um, from a few sources, uh, reliable sources like the Census Bureau, um, the Natural Resources Defense Council, my former client, um, and the EPA. And they're looking at you know, three specific categories, environmental quality, eco-friendly behaviors, and again, climate change contributions, right? Which has become really important. And when you look at that and you compile this, the leading state um, for being the most sustainable is actually Vermont, followed by Oregon, Massachusetts, and New York down at number four. California's um, up there, but they're number nine on the list. So they're not at the very top of the list. Um, And also, just surprising, number five is South Dakota. And I don't know, you hear news about fracking and stuff and and, and cell pipeline, and people probably don't think of South Dakota as being one of the more um, environmentally friendly states. You talked about where the U.S. ranks in terms of the league table of green sustainable construction, that the index that Yale created. Are Americans, when they're buying property or people are building construction sites for industry or business, as well as uh, domestic homes, are they getting more interested in the sustainable or is that not in the top three or four considerations? Some are and some aren't. Not being a political science major, I don't understand why this is so political, but it is, right? It seems to be that depending on your politics depends on how much you care about sustainable design. And so, you know, people like myself, 
if I were looking to buy a new home, right, I would be looking for something that was maybe net zero or passive house or solar panels on the roof for sure. And there are other people that just seem to have this rebellion against it. And I think it might be because there's a misconception that being pro-environment, pro-sustainability is anti-business. If we're going to protect the environment, then we're going we're gonna to cripple capitalism. It doesn't really prove to be true. I mean, the, um, that Yale index, what they found when they analyzed the data of all the different countries was that countries that dedicate capital to an eco-friendly culture. So culturally, having all of the you know, citizens of the country really feeling that it's important, um, they're not only at the top of the list, but they also seem to have more robust economies. So, you know, a conclusion that can be made there is that sustainable ethos, right, applied to policy and business usually does well for both the economy and the people. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not an anti-business strategy to be green. But I don't know that the, uh, particularly in the United States, I think there's a portion of the population that just doesn't know that or doesn't believe it. Do you think in the U.S. as well that construction firms, big and small, are they getting it? Are they getting the message? Do you think, sure. or is it still bottom line dollar? Construction firms are definitely getting it. Um, so, we're, our firm is part of the American Institute of Architects Large Firm Roundtable, which is sort of like uh, firms fifty and above, right? So, the big firms, mm-hmm. and I mean, some of these firms are huge, right? And have offices around the world. And I'm on a bunch of sustainability committees with uh, my peers in the other firms, and it's it's all our industry is talking about. And in fact, the AIA did something a couple of years ago called the Big Pivot, where they basically said all of their um, resources as our professional association were going to start to be devoted toward um, mitigating climate change. So the the architecture industry gets it, um, obviously, you know, engineering as well. And then even, you know, construction, our construction partners have really come to the table now too. I participate in a group called Sustainable Design Leaders. Um, through the website, buildinggreen.com. And they now have spinoffs and there's actually a group called Sustainable Construction Leaders. And they have a bunch of people from contracting firms across the country that are interested in are participating. So that's a really good sign that, you know, it used to be maybe a contractor would try to value engineer you out of something that costs a little bit more to be more sustainable. Um, now they might be the ones at the table bringing it up and saying, hey, we could we could do this more efficiently. What if we try this? So it's, it's really a, an interesting evolution that I think is only going to help us and, and get better with time. Is it helpful that you have a, a White House administration now that does follow the science regarding overall climate change and its impact? Do you think that 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 filters down. A hundred percent. I think everyone was holding their breath waiting for this to happen. Science is important. I mean, we had some questions earlier, right? We were talking about subjective versus, you know, data-driven answers. It's critically important. And I hope, I hope they continue to be successful. And I hope maybe with what's going on right now, with how we're really seeing, people are seeing visual impacts of climate change, our air quality index again here in Chicago is awful today because of fires that are in Canada and out west. Maybe people are going to realize it's not a political issue and that no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, mitigating climate change and taking care of the environment is critically important. Is there any new or recent federal support, federal government support or inducements to encourage sustainable build? There are. I mean, so interestingly, when you look at, you know, in, in the U.S., they like to look at a new president and talk about their first 100 days. And I mean, out of the gate, this administration, they got world leaders together and they 
joined, rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement and increased our target for cutting climate pollution by 2030, appointed a bunch of really smart, really qualified people to um, environmental leadership jobs, pushing this um, jobs plan, which is focusing on green jobs and sustainable technologies, really prioritizing environmental justice, especially for underserved communities, and you know, rolling back some of the really um, harmful things to the environment that happened in the last administration. And then you know, beyond that, the Senate right now is sitting on three energy efficiency tax incentives for both homes and buildings, which they're um, hoping are going to pass. There's an incentive for commercial buildings, an incentive for new homes construction, and an incentive for energy improvements to existing homes. So in terms of talking about, say, home construction, what does that mean in terms of inducements? I mean, are we talking about tax breaks, that kind of thing? Yeah, they're talking about tax breaks. These kinds of things have had relatively low incentive levels and also outdated energy performance criteria. So people haven't really been going after them. But um, Congress and the Biden administration are really looking to see how they can improve these as part of this infrastructure bill they're talking about. And they want to push not just better incentives, but also higher performance structures. So if you want to do net zero, for instance, maybe you'll get a major tax break to do that. And maybe that tax break will be enough to afford, let's say, the roof full of photovoltaic panels and the battery storage that you'll want to do to get there. In terms of the picture in America, can you sort of pick out for us, for for all our listeners around the world, a couple of green build projects that are going on, big and small, that you're aware of, that kind of capture this concept best? What I would look at is the... um, Living Future Institute's Living Building Challenge. Because what's amazing about a living building is a living building looks at, they call them pedals, a bunch of parameters across all sectors of sustainability. To get a full pedal certification, the three big ones are energy, water, and materials. And you need to be net zero, if not net positive, for energy and water. And for materials, you have to have 100% what they call red list free materials in your building, which means that you know there's this list of potential chemicals of concern that in some way, shape or form have evidence that um, they could harm people or animals. The most common one on the list that's commonly used is PVC. So in a red list free building, you can't use anything like that, which means it's really challenging to do. Um, and you know, there's a handful of buildings that have achieved this and they're documented on their website. Um, And a lot of them give tours because education and um, sort of lobbying for policy upgrades is part of their mission. Um, The Bullet Center in Seattle, which I had the pleasure of touring a couple years ago, is a really great example of this. They have a solar umbrella over the building, right, that they went so far as to get special permission from zoning to cantilever this over the street in order to make sure it was big enough to uh, create enough power to make the building net zero. Turns out the building has actually been running net positive in most years. You know, it's an office building. It's actually the office building for the Living Future Institute. It's not a huge office building, right? Decent size office building, multiple floors. 
they have composting toilets, which, you know, most people think of composting toilets in like a nature center or something. And they actually, they'll take you. And it's funny because when we did this, my husband was on the tour with me and he was kind of grossed out by it. But (laughs) in the basement, right, they'll give you a bag of their like compost fertilizer that they're making. From the waste of all the people in the building, right? right. And, you know, it's it's which they have branded funny little bags, and then they're you know they're selling the excess to farmers in the surrounding areas. You know, instead of taking from from the land that they're on, they're actually behaving like a biological organism and existing in the ecosystem. That's know? really interesting. A, a building as a biological organism that can that's happening. Yeah, it is. I mean, no. not not a ton, but I mean, I think maybe. I don't know if you've tried to see how many living uh, full certified because they also do partial certifications. Uh, if you can't, you know, for example, eliminate all your red list materials, you can do some partial certifications. But a full certified living building, maybe there's 50, 60 of them currently. Um, program has been around for, for some time. Um, but, you know, something like that is it's beyond some of the other certification programs because mm. again, right. It's really pushing the building to be a living organism. And, and that's obviously the future. I mean, so the, the human waste isn't going into the water supply or anything like that. It's, it's going on the farms to grow food. I mean, that's right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well. it's, it, you know, and which is, you know, nature doesn't waste anything, right? Trees, when they decompose the fungi and other mushrooms and things in the forest, then take them and turn them into fertilizer for the soil. It's a closed system. You're not sending waste elsewhere. And so, you know, that's not how we operate since the industrial revolution. And then you hear really scary things like, what if we send our waste into space? It's like, no, (laughs) right? Like, no, like, let's just stop making waste, right? Let's figure out how to turn our waste into new building materials. Let's figure out how to have, you know, net zero waste, right? And that's, that's where we need to go. How could waste be turned into building material? Just explain that sort of conundrum. You know, it depends on what kind of waste you're talking about, right? And I mean, I'm sure like human, human waste, somebody's going to figure out how to do that. But, you know, just like construction waste, for example, if you're building a wood building and you have a bunch of two by four scraps, right? Or, or things that you're cutting as you're putting, th- that doesn't have to go and sit in a landfill. You could take that back to the mill, grind it up and put it into new plywood. You could do the same thing with, you know, glass, take it back to the factory, melt it down and put it into new glass. There's not many things that we need to throw away. Part of the key though, is using less toxic chemicals because the mm-hmm. fewer toxic chemicals, the less processing and energy has to be used, right? To reconstitute something into something usable. It's a science problem. It's an engineering problem, and it's fun. That's kind of why I enjoy this stuff. You know. Let's say I'm pretending to be a contractor, a builder, and I want to construct a new development, a new housing development, for instance, for domestic use. Okay. And I go to you and say, Daniel, give me a list of three or four things that need to be done to make this development, this project, a sustainable green one. What would they be? I mean, the first thing you need to do, right, is you need to do your site analysis. You need to have the cultural history of the site. You need to have the ecology of the site, looking at flora and fauna, looking at the water cycle, right? Looking at the wind patterns. You just really need to understand the site. I mean, this is Frank Lloyd Wright used to camp in a tent on a construction site for a long time before he started designing a building. You need to understand the site because once you do that, when you start designing, you can design in a way that meets the needs of the project with as many passive strategies as possible. So 
how much can you capitalize on natural breezes depending on the climate before you actually need to use air conditioning? How much can you capitalize on passive solar depending on the solar angle and orientation before you need to use heating systems? So right off the bat, that makes your baseline for how much energy use you're going to need lower, could be significantly lower. I mean, we have a project that it's 80% lower. And then, okay, with what's left, all the systems that you're going to use should be the most efficient possible. So, you know, a lot of contractors right now, and if you, you know, I don't do single family residential, but I'm aware of it, right? Driving around, they're using better products like sheathing that has the insulation integrated with it and it's all continuous on the outside, right? Easier to install and you get a better, tighter envelope, which means you're going to use less heating. So now you've got as much passive as you can. Then as much as efficient of a um, envelope or a building as you can, including the systems, then look at the energy you're going to use and now meet that with renewable sources. Solar panels, PV panels, uh, they've gotten better, much better, and the price has come down. You should look for, they should look for incentives because incentives are very location by location, but there's a lot of incentives out there. And, you know, meet meet your needs with as much renewable as possible. And if you can get to net zero, particularly if you could do it on site, right? So let's say PV panels with battery storage, it's not just better for the bigger picture environmentally. It's also more resilient. Where I grew up, there'd be times where you'd have a, a crazy snowstorm while the leaves were still on the trees or something. And the power would be out for like four days. We'd be sitting in the dark with candles and my next door neighbor had this diesel generator running. It was making tons of noise. But if you had PV and um, battery storage, you could just be going on with your life while the power's out. It's kind of beneficial for everybody to have these kinds of off-the-grid, self-contained, resilient systems. Also, the final question is, given your your profession as an architect, do you think that schools of architecture, particularly architecture with construction projects in mind, um, that sustainable build, green build, whatever you want to call it, that that should be a compulsory and essential part of any any degree educational program for, for future architects around the world, Absolutely. not just in States. Absolutely, and you know, I think the American Collegiate Society of Architects, who uh, are you know monitoring curriculum for accredited school, accredited schools in the U.S., they look at that for sure. Um, but you know, not all schools are created equal. So, I mean, I had a pretty good background in it, but I think of Sam Mockby, who late Sam Mockby, who taught at University of Alabama, they actually have like, I don't want to call it an internship, right? Like physical programs where the students go into underserved communities and construct buildings out of waste carpet and, you know, waste materials and um, for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford a house, right? That kind of immersion and really, really living it is, I would love to see that in every school because that really connects the doing it on paper with the benefits for people. And, you know, when you have a, a homeowner who now has an amazingly low energy, comfortable place to live that was affordable and you got to build it with your hands, that really lets you learn and really understand what's important. So those kind of practical programs um, would be great if those could be replicated in more schools around the world. We could sit here and we can be victims of climate change and think, oh, I can't go outside today. The air quality is bad. Or, oh, the lands around my place are burning. 
Or we could realize that it's a problem that we can fix. We can fix it by applying science, applying technology, and you know, being willing to make some small sacrifices in order to undo kind of the things that are um, since the industrial revolution, right? That we've created. We have time to do it, but we need to do it. And you know, net zero to me should just be the standard for everything. And I know it's not a cakewalk to do it, but it's important enough that everybody should be pushing it. I'd love to see more building codes pushing net zero. And I think that's, we're up for the challenge as a species, right? We just need to, we just need to be open to it. Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people. And thanks to Daniel Giaconetti for his insights into green building in the US and around the world. Pete, that's one of the big challenges at the moment, climate change, but sort of immediately there are some other big issues aren't there we've touched base on these things a few times already steve but uh, you know what as time goes by they're they're not going away so i think we might as well have another chat about them and uh, there's three major points that we've got at the moment or three major issues i'd say one is materials and that's kind of on two levels one is the availability of materials and then the other part of materials is the cost of materials is, is going through the roof so there's certainly um, issues there that uh, are are creating kind of challenges for us in, in the construction industry. And then labor is the next one. It's very simple. We're, we're in a situation where globally there is massive amount of demand for construction. And that's on a big level in terms of industry level and on development level and then down even just to your, your domestic level. So there's a huge demand. People, I suppose, look are, are just constantly looking for work to be done to their houses to upgrade their homes. And the technology has gone through the roof in the last few years. People are much more cognizant of that. So they want to upgrade their homes to make sure that their homes are insulated. They're looking for the new uh, technology to be introduced into maybe an existing home. And they're looking for just general upgrades on, on, on renovations on, on the homes that they have. And then you've got like, you know, obviously the, the shortage, uh, housing shortage that we, we have in an awful lot of, of regions around the world, which are, are, are pushing a serious demand on all construction materials. And then we've had, uh, the pandemic, which has put a very unusual situation in place where a lot of industry and manufacturing plants had to shut down for, for a period of time. Transport has been slow due to different issues that we've, we've, we've faced. Obviously, the pandemic has slowed down that type of stuff. It took a, a, a long time for people to, to get back on their feet. We had this Suez Canal issue. We've had uh, Brexit. So there is basically the perfect storm of unusual construction issues, unusual industry issues, along with the fact that there's a massive demand for construction projects to be carried out. Didn't even mention infrastructure, like there's a huge amount of infrastructure upgrades being done in, in all parts of the world. I suppose what we have is, is a very positive situation in that there's an awful lot of work that people want done, but there's a very unusual situation in that normally we're able to go, okay, that's great. Client A wants me to do X amount of work. I know my rates. I know I, I have the guys to do it. I can't wait to do it. This is fantastic news. I'm going to go and do it. But in our situation, we've got, okay, I've got client A, B, and C that all want me to do work at the same time. They all want to use these materials that I'm not even sure if I can get my hands on them. And when I do get my hands on them, I'm not actually sure what the price of those materials are. And because I've got client A, B, and C, I'm going to need three different crews to work on the three different projects. And I'm not sure if I can even get two crews, never mind three crews, or can I get one good crew? So 
it's a challenge. There's no doubt about it. You know, people always say it's a good problem to have lots of work, but it's still a problem. And again, when it comes to it, you have to have integrity. You have to make sure that you don't spread yourself too thin. You have to make sure that you get the, the projects done correctly. And at the end of it all, you have to make sure that you're making a profit because there's no point in be a, be, being a busy fool. There's no point in having all the work that you've ever wanted and then not make a profit out of it. So a lot of ju- balls to be juggled, a lot of uh, maneuvering to be done for us poor construction people. But that's the challenges that we face at the moment, Steve. And they're constantly fluctuating and they're constantly moving. And I suppose we just have to be very, very organized and keep our eye on the ball to make sure that we keep all those balls juggling because you don't want to let one fall, you know? No, absolutely. And, and you know, regular listeners will know that you are on the TV in Ireland. Uh, you are Ireland's favourite TV builder. I, th- I think I can say that. I don't know if you would say that. But, um, <laughs> I'm your favourite TV builder anyway. <laughs> yeah, you're my favourite TV builder. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but uh, how's that affecting the TV show? Because you go in, you're trying to do these projects. Obviously, a TV show is suffering the same problems that every other builder is suffering with uh, things. But uh, with the short timescales you often work on on these things, getting the materials must be challenging for that. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I work with uh, Roshin Murphy is the is the uh, architect that works on on the projects with me. So Roshin does the designs, and then I come in with my team and we we do the the, the makeover. So our show is is uh, done over four days, and and it's done on a on a you would call a medium sized budget. It's not a it's not as you know, big as maybe the likes of DIY SOS or one of those uh, projects. Home Rescue is the name of our show, if anyone hasn't heard of it before. We are facing the same challenges on the show. I've actually recorded uh, two of the shows for the new series and we four more to go. So Roshin, you know, in previous times has always left our options open and I may bring three or four different types of plywoods with me or different finishes that I, I would... Uh, you know, knowing in, in, in my heart and soul that she, she might change her, her, her mind last minute and I can might have to pull something out of the of the closet there that I can I can use. But I just don't have those options now. And I've I've had to say that to Roshan. Like I can't say to her, listen, I can leave your options open because the materials just aren't there. Like if if I want to use a like a, an off standard veneered plywood or something, I have to like there's a long lead in time and then also the cost of plywoods in particular has gone through the roof. So I just have to say to her, you know, you know, you're gonna have to kinda decide a little bit earlier what material you want to use because today I've been able to just say okay no problem and you know a couple of phone calls and a couple of favors are pulled in and a delivery happens that's not happening anymore and then again the cost as well of off-standard products are going to the roof so look e- even on that that small scale these challenges that I mentioned earlier are there I have to try and maneuver to make sure that I have the right tradesmen available to do the jobs so you know combined with with everything else it's also <laughs> the holiday season so a lot of lads are are even not a, not around for that as well so look a lot, a lot of challenges but again I, I often say this and I really do mean it if there was ever an industry that is used to taking on challenges and completing them it is the construction industry because we are an industry that is constantly evolving we've had so many different I suppose booms and busts and technological revolutions happening and man and woman have wanted shelter all their lives and us in the construction industry we we've addressed all those uh, issues all through history and we're not going to stop now so we just have to batten down the hatches in terms of our organization and the the, the other positive that I, I would bring in to this steve is that and again it's another subject that we do regularly talk about here in constructive voices and that is the technological advances that have been made and there's so many apps and there's so many and programs out there that can have your business running super smooth and very well prepared. You can 
check how much stock you've got in. You can forecast where there's going to issues, you know, coming down the line. You can, you know, you can check and see where you are on the project at any stage in terms of your costs. Are you in a positive? Are you in a negative? You can do all of those things very efficiently now, whereas that would have been a very arduous task to do over the years, especially on, on the larger scale companies. They would have a huge amount of plant, a huge amount of labor, huge amount of maybe materials and storage. Um, and that would have been very difficult to record. But these days we do have uh, a lot of platforms that we can use and a, a lot of uh, programs and um, techn- like technology can help us in construction. And if we ever needed it, we need it now. So I think a lot of, a lot of construction companies are identifying that. And it's like any of the technological uh, advances that are made you know when the first color television came out there was only one <laughs> one house on the road that had the the color television and then eventually everyone had it and now we all have smart TVs and different things happening so you know the price of the likes of these programs and the likes of the, of these technological advancements um that you can use in your in your in your company have become more affordable now they've streamlined down from being like something that only the top end people would have to literally the local everyday man can have a, a smaller version of the same kind of uh, program or app. So it's it's busy times and there's there's a lot happening and there's a, there's a lot of transition. And um, I suppose you, like 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 always, we just have to stay ahead of the game and we always have to be, be prepared and and make sure that we're. Uh, we're on top of our game and, and, and keep on delivering the really good stuff that we do, you know? Absolutely. Pete, as always, great to talk to you and we'll talk again next time. Good stuff, Steve. I'm off to order a load of material, talk to all the lads, make sure that I'm all ready to go so that my head is in a lovely, nice, stress-free place <laughs> next time I speak to you. <laughs> Cheers, Steve. Talk to you, man. Cheers. Bye. And that's all for Constructive Voices this time. The second of three episodes in August. The next one will be at the end of the month. Don't forget you can find out more about the show and other bits and pieces by going to our website, constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. And we'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the show and the construction industry, of course. We'd be really grateful if you can share these episodes with your colleagues and contacts like and share them on social media and of course follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app to make sure you get every episode automatically until next time thanks for listening you're really helping us build something